When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Before we get started today, I want to remind you to go to glazierclinics.com slash win to enter our sweepstakes. Thank you to Glazier for collaborating with us and giving us that prize to award our listeners on the fifth anniversary of the podcast, which is December 12th. A player-driven culture is the healthiest form of culture. Although the head coach is ultimately responsible for creating the program's core values, The culture doesn't shift to player-driven until players make the choice to take ownership of the standards that drive these values. A player-driven culture infuses accountability, ownership of performance, ownership of individual and team success, and the ownership and accountability that comes as a result is invaluable to a program's success, often producing achievements significantly above personnel talent level. That's what we're going to talk about here today, this idea of player-driven culture and really how it's been put together as a system. And joining me is the co-founder and senior research manager of XNO Labs, Coach Mike Kuchar. Mike, first of all, it's great to have you here on the podcast. I've known you for years. We've talked a lot of ball over the years. I think I've written some articles for you. So it's great to have you here on the podcast for the first time. Appreciate you having me, Keith. Always good to talk to you. Mike, I was really impressed with what you've put together uh, as a, a course on CoachTube. You've also written the book on it, and the idea is the player-driven culture system. And it's, so it's not really something that you came up with on your own. You've done this incredible amount of research in talking to over 40 programs, high school and college level, around the country, and really boiling things down to these seven competencies. So first of all, Talk to me about that process. How did you go about finding all these things as you went into this research and into the study of, of what really builds culture? As a high school coach, I've been a high school coach now for 23 years, and I always felt that the, the locker room is always the mainstay of your culture. Regardless of what people say, regardless of what's on your T-shirts, regardless of what's in your weight room, whatever placard you're walking around with, you know, the, the, the pain is temporary, pride is forever stuff. It, your culture is your locker room. And I always felt that the best culture is one, is, is one that's governed by players, where players hold each other accountable. And I've, I've, through my years of coaching, there's, there's, there's years where I felt I had it, 
Um, there's years where I felt I did not have it, but I feel like we're always searching for that. That's always the carrot for coaches. How can we get there? So the, the part of the process behind my research, Keith, was, was guiding coaches and how to get there and how to be able to sustain it. We always hear about culture being sustainable. You know, the, the Clemsons, the Dabo Sweeney's of the world. How do they sustain it? Well, that was kind of the impetus behind my research, but it, it really did not get crystal clear to me until I talked to Tim Kite. And I know, Keith, you probably know who Tim Kite is. Tim Kite was the one that was brought in by Urban Meyer when Urban Meyer first got the job at Ohio State. I think it was 2013 or 2014. And he brought in Tim. 2014. And 2014. And Tim was the one that told me, he said, culture has to be built like a system. And it has to be treated like a system, just like you would install a 4-3 defense, just like you would install a a midline triple option offense or a special teams installation. It has to be an installation. And that's where it really started to become clear to me. That was a watershed moment when I had that conversation with Tim. I was fortunate to have him be part of this study. And that's really what he told me. And that's when I felt like, okay, it's a system. I got it. Because, you know, coaches, you know, they say things, they hear things. They're, they're collectors, as you know, Keith, being a coach yourself. They're great collectors. But they need someone to streamline that into a progressive format, just like you would with an install to defense, offense, or special teams. And, and that's where it kind of became clear to me from that point on. Yeah, Tim has been on the, the podcast before. We did something live with him and his son, Brian Kite, at AFCA. I think it was in uh, 2017. and. Uh, also, um, Brian's done quite a few podcasts with us, actually three seasons worth of that with us. So we're very familiar with uh, that system on the podcast. And I agree with you. It does need to be a system. I think the collector side of things certainly resonates with me. I, I have, and I, again, I, I've said it before, I don't know why I still keep it, but it, it, it I guess it symbolizes years of work, all these notebooks and binders and cut-ups yeah. and at the time when you know you put it together at vhs i was i wasn't of the cut-up age where it was actually the the film spliced together but all these things we collect over time and you have to though adapt that to what you're doing you have to put it within a system that's going to work for you and what i love about your study is you give multiple examples of how teams apply these competencies the things they do to bring them alive and to make these things work. So as you were going through your research, did the competencies kind of come clear as you were looking at it, that these are the things, or did you go into it with a framework that you were looking at? I didn't know what the competencies were, and competencies are just a fancy name for behaviors. But what I did know is that system behaviors create habits, and habits drive culture. That That's what I did know. And so it's the behavior framework for me was pretty evident in talking to Dabo Sweeney, who was a source for the study, talking to Ed Odron, who was a source for the study, the word be, and, you know, and Tim, and the behavior word kept coming up to me. And that's felt like, okay, at least there's a pathway for coaches to teach or kind of guide a player driven culture. And that pathway becomes behaviors. And then once my research started to get going, then I was able to identify what specifically those behaviors were through my conversations through you know as you mentioned all these sources that contributed to the study so you start with the first one being messaging and and i think that's one that's clear i mean 
if if anything, we're over-messaged today, right? We have all these things we share and ideas, etc. But I think what you've found within these different cultures, that they've done it a certain way that's worked for them, and that was very clear what their messaging was going to include and how they were going to do it. So what were the things that you found about the competency or the behavior of messaging? Well, you know, it's, it's funny, Keith, because when I, you know, Dabo, when I, when I meant to, to talk to Coach Sweeney, when I sat down with Coach, um, he was the one that told me, he said, anytime you get in front of your team, your message better be clear and it's important. And, you know, I think in the, in, in the book, in the study, I mentioned the first chapter was a story about Ed Ogeron. And, you know, Ed Ogeron, when he had the job in Mississippi, you know, he had, a, he had a head coaching job there. He came in there, and his story is well documented. He walked into the room, and he, think he, he might have challenged a few players, and he took his shirt off. And, you know, and, and you could look this stuff up, but, you know, I think we all yeah, know the I character of Ed. And the person. Book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, you know, and he challenged his players. And, I, and he told me, like, that was the big moment for him. Now when he got the job at LSU, he realized that, Every time you get up there, it's important. So what you say counts and what you say matters. And I, I agree with you. I, I think it's fairly an obvious concept, but I don't know how many coaches really take that into consideration and understand that not only what they're saying, but how they're saying it. So in that study, I laid up several ways of messaging, and I called it you know, direct messaging, which could come from yourself or come from your, your staff or come from your leaders. Um, which, you know, people like to talk, they're on social media. We all understand that. Um, but the other form, which I think is probably more, uh, efficient is the indirect messaging where you're using things like book studies, where you're using things like, uh, where you're creating, uh, culture cutups and you're sending it to players where you're, where, where it's text messaging, where there's, where there's, you know, uh, Google email and things like that, where you're just continually indirectly messaging whatever core values you have as a program. So I think that's the distinction when I did my research. It's always interesting to say things, but a lot of the best coaches we've been around don't, don't say much. You know, it, it's how they're kind of conveying that message indirectly through uh, various avenues. You know, the history lesson comes across, you know, University of Iowa and Clemson, they, 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 you know, they talk about the culture of their program through other players that have exhibited their core values that are associated with that program. You know, Sean Green from Iowa, they talk about him, and Dabo talks about it in the book. I think I mentioned, um, oh, the running back. I forgot his name. The, uh, in 2009, 2010, was an excellent running back for them. Uh, you know, it, it just, just about kind of about what they do and, and, and how they exude or how they exhibit those core values within the program. So there's different ways to message, which I explained in the, in the study, but indirect, I felt, could be a little more uh, uh, effective. I, I liked the idea of the culture cutups, and it's something that I saw in action and sat down with uh, at a, it was an informal clinic, it was actually at a camp with players and coaches at Quarterback Collective, and Mike Shanahan was talking about this idea of protect the team, and um, pointing out both examples of, you know, how you protect the team in practice, and and, uh, how you don't, and so that was one of their their things they valued, and and so he had this whole cutup, actually, it was like, two hours of this uh, this clinic it was amazing where he did that but I think when you can capture those things on film that this is how we do things those examples especially for the way kids you know are very visual today it's about video I think that's a huge asset to your program yeah and many of them are using those culture cut-ups before they even get into the specifics of any technique or scheme it's this is how 
player X exhibits the core value of desire or the core value of intelligence. And this is how he shows it. And, and you all know, I mean, that's how kids absorb information now through their phones. So they're seeing it illustratively before you're even telling them about it. Mike, the next one you go into is collaboration and collaboration is, is, is really what this is all about, you know, bringing in your players to the process. So talk to us about the, some of the key things you found with this behavior. Well, I felt collaboration was pretty important because that's really where the standards get tied to the core values. You know, as a head coach, it's your job to create the core values, whatever it is, integrity, toughness, desire, intelligence. But the players have to create what the definition is of those core values. So a lot of the coaches that I talk to, they will even set up a Google form and send out a Google form to each player, say, tell me about what integrity means to you. And they'll collect that information They'll assimilate that information and they'll use that so that now they could start teaching that core value to the players. So the collaboration starts with the players actually defining what those standards are, because you have to have the core values first, but you know, players have to know, especially this day and age, Keith, they have to know why you're doing what you're doing. You can't just tell Mm -hmm. them, get tough, get tougher, be smarter. I mean, we've all fell victim to that kind of verbiage. But if you're not defining that for them, you're not helping them. And how you're defining it, I found, is in four separate domains. You have to define it on the football field. You have to define it in the classroom. You have to define it in the community. And you have to define it socially as well. And I think that's where play, or, or in the strength and conditioning program. And I think that's where players start to understand what the core value means because as coaches we're doing a disservice to ourselves if we're just coaching football especially a high school coach like myself if you're essentially teaching these players to become better men because that's what we're doing this job for then you have to be able to use those core values in every area of their life but you have to define it firm and the collaboration comes from players it doesn't have to be your leaders okay but players actually establishing those standards that drive those core values. So that was a pretty big, important kind of um, another watershed moment for me during the research. You know, the, the, the delegation of standards built collaboratively by your players that define whatever core values are established by the head coach. We talk about in this game how important relationships are in all kinds of different aspects, whether it's you're in college and you're recruiting a guy or he's in your room and you're developing him, uh, even the, the relationships coach to coach, right? All those different types of relationships you have in a program and the behavior behind that you call connectivity. I mean, that, to me, that was something that I've, I've learned my first start of coaching as a college coach. I feel like how many players have an association with coaches that didn't recruit them? You know, not many. So when I started doing my research and, and Jim McElwain of Central Michigan was one that turned my eyes on to this, where he'll just take players and divide them into random groupings. If he has 100 players on the roster, maybe 25 players in each group picked randomly. He'll assign one to two coaches per each group. And those, those groupings will basically, they'll, they'll filter through a strength and conditioning program. They'll filter through breakfast. They'll filter through practice. They'll filter through the weight room. 
And these coaches will just be responsible for monitoring and developing relationship with those particular players. Uh, South Dakota State under Coach Nielsen, uh, South Dakota, excuse me, under Coach Nielsen is another source to this study where he'll actually have life lessons. Well, he'll divide the roster up positionally, you know, where players will come in and they'll, they'll, they'll be with each position and a coach from a different position will come up and just kind of have a meeting. A wide receiver coach will go in a defensive line room, you know, and they'll talk about one of the core values of the program. I think University of Buffalo, Coach Leopold, who's now at Kansas, uh, was a part of this study where they just, they just rotated through their three core values. So each group will learn about one of those core values from three or four different coaches and why that value is important. So not only a developing relationship with another coach from a different side of the ball, but now they're in a different position meeting room with different players who they usually don't associate with on a daily basis. So I think I call that integration methods. There's several there in the study where I talk about how coaches are doing either by position, random grouping, um, but that I found another way to develop kind of connectivity. And, and, And the last thing I'll say about connectivity uh, Chris Creighton was an excellent source at Eastern Michigan um, for this study because he really talked about finding the niche in your program. And Chris is a guy that's been through a few different programs, and he really uh, did a good job of understanding the type of people at Eastern Michigan, the blue collar. You know, I don't know if you, know, you follow what he does. He used to wear those mechanic shirts on the bowl games. He has the players come down and knock down a wall, a makeshift wall. You know, even the turf, he got the turf a, a, a color slate of gray just to kind of symbolize that workmanlike mentality. And he told me that it took him a while to find out what's different about that program. And I think that's what we have to do as coaches. It doesn't be at the college level. It could be at the high school level. How is our town different? What's the socioeconomics? What's the demographics? What is the historical context of our town? And use that to kind of connect not just your football team, but the town and the community to your football team. And it's not just about giving a T-shirt to the custodial staff. You know what I mean? It's about understanding what type of people are in that town and why, it's in, why football can be important if it's not important already. So that's kind of the process that I walk through in connectivity in each of those facets. It's so important, the connectivity piece. And a lesson really my, my players taught me uh, around the mid-2000s, uh, a, t- a particular team I had, the seniors or upcoming seniors that year hadn't won a hadn't had a winning season they've won games they hadn't had a winning season throughout their career youth football middle school uh freshman jv together that group hadn't experienced a winning season throughout their careers and uh we had a strong leadership group before but one of the things that these guys as i pulled them together and and you know you could skip over them say i oh, will just we're going to build it on the younger guys but i felt like the, these guys deserved the experience of, of being seniors, the opportunity to lead and do all those things. And so we started to sit down. And one of the things they said is they didn't feel connected to that group before them, that um, there was definitely a gap there. And, and part of it was probably because those are the guys out on the field. But at the same time, they didn't feel it. So one of the things was required of this group. And, and in that group, uh, I think all but one uh, one of them chose to be a part of our leadership team. It was It was open to them. They had to do certain things. One of the things they had to do was go around and interview everybody on the team and, and buy a certain date in the summer. I said, you need to learn who everybody is on this team. You said connectivity was important, so here's what we're going to do. And, you know, some of them kept notebooks. Some of it, some of them just, you know, they remembered all this stuff. But, you know, I'd go through and, and 
point at a kid and say, hey, who's this kid? What is he on our team? Tell me something about him. And that team actually came together very well. They provided great leadership and had the first winning season they ever had in their career. And primarily, they were the guys out on the field. They took ownership of it. They did the work required. But that connectivity, that behavior, as you point out, so important. Moving on to uh, the next one. And, and this is one probably not talked about very much. Self-advocacy. Explain what that is to us in terms of a behavior and why it's important. Man, I love this one. I really loved it because I just felt like at this day and age, especially now, and I'm, you know, we could talk about the COVID and the pandemic and global unrest. And kids, the issue that everybody has a voice now, right, Keith, when you think about it. Everyone go to Twitter. Everyone has their Twitter accounts. And sometimes their voice is more influential, powerful than yours as a coach. So that's an inherent challenge that we're facing right now as coaches. Um, but they have a voice and you have to educate them on how to use that voice. And that was all wrapped up in the behavior of self-advocacy. And I think this really became clear to me when I talked to uh, David Shaw at Stanford, who's another source to this study, where he talked about the responsibility behind it. You have a voice. How are you using that voice? How are you taking ownership of that voice? And that comes through giving players the opportunity in an environment where they have no inhibitions to basically voice what their needs are, right? Because that's what self advocacy we're here to serve our players. We're here to serve as coaches. And that self-advocacy can manifest itself in, you know, uh, leadership. It can manifest itself in nutrition. It can manifest itself in academics. And why that's important is because it's their team and it's their program. And I feel like we gloss over that as coaches. We assume it's always been done a certain way, so it's always going to be done a certain way. But we're not the players anymore. We're not the ones experiencing that. And I think I got that, you know, uh, Neil Brown of West Virginia was another source to this where he talked about all Fortune 500 companies are run this way where everything's on the table nothing's off limits, evaluate everything about the program, evaluate your coaches, evaluate your teammates, you know, but do it in a way that's tasteful, do it in a way where you can have an open and honest discussion. And the two pillars on self-advocacy that I really revealed and found is that you can't be afraid to have difficult conversations and you have to be able to evaluate everything matters. You know, it's the old Urban Meyer, everything matters mindset. You have to know everything about your players. And the methods, and, and, and we can go into detail now, but there's so many methods in that study in terms of players evaluating players, players evaluating coaches. You know, one of the better ones that I thought was really Mike DeFazio over at Kip High School in New York. Uh, now I believe he's an assistant at Columbia or a quality control guy at Columbia University. You know, he talked about a complete uh, transparent meeting at the end of the year where players are evaluating coaches, they're evaluating each other. Everybody gets in the room and everybody discusses what is on that sheet or what is on that evaluation. And he said, there's two rules. Number one, you're not here to settle a gripe. Okay. And number two, you cannot address the criticism until it's over. And I really think that that develops some transparency and that develops some vulnerability in terms of understanding how to get to whatever problem you're having within a program. And that's a very scary thing to do as a coach. I know that but I think it has to be done to be able to get to the core of your culture, to break down barriers. And, you know, there's others in there. Um, 
North Dakota State will do something with their players. The first thing they do with their players, they play their, they pair their players up, freshman to senior for 15 minutes. Matt Enns, the head coach of North Dakota State, he'll do this in the theater where there's five questions, you know, that each player will ask another one. Uh, what's your biggest form of adversity in life? What are you trying to accomplish? What's your, what's your best memory? And they'll just, they'll lay it all out there. You know what I mean? I just, and he told me it's just a way to break down barriers in the beginning of the season, just get players to understand each other and get to know each other because essentially they're playing for each other. So there's a lot in there, but I thought self-advocacy really struck a nerve with me as a coach to try to bring that vulnerability out in yourself and your players and your coaches. But you got to have a staff that's willing to do it, Keith. I will say that. I'm sure there's some staffs out there across the country that will fight back or push back on that. And that's a conversation that you need to have with your staff to understand that, hey, you know, you're going to be evaluated. You know, Randy Jackson, North Forney High School, we all know what type of job he does with culture. You know, he calls it his, his, his player-to-coach autopsy, where everything's getting evaluated at the end of the year. Will you, lay in, will you lay in traffic for your coach? Yes, it's a yes or no question. <laughs> and, you know, he phrased it. If you say no, you know, they, they, they got to reevaluate something. So, uh, and he'll ask me who their favorite coach is, aside from their position coach. But, yeah, no, there's a lot there, and I really learned a lot from the sources in trying to get to the root of any – uh, issues you're having your culture, your program. Yeah. What I like about that too, it, it is something that you, your coaches have to be willing to be vulnerable, but what you offer here is all kinds of examples. So I, I think there's something that your staff could land on that we're comfortable doing this right now. And I think you can grow into some of these other ideas as well. Yeah. And I just want to make that point, Keith, and, and this is the whole thing for the study stuff. You don't have to do all of this. You know what I mean? There's different methods, like you said, in, in building whatever behavior we're addressing. But yes, you can start small and you can start anonymously where there's no name tied mm-hmm. to anything. You know, but I think you have to do something or else you're doing a major disservice to your players. Something that is becoming more and more important to this generation we coach is this idea of um, emotional awareness, right? And and that there's a pathway to it that is mindfulness. So something that I've, I've, I'm bringing on more and more guests, I feel like, over time to talk about some of these things. But emotional awareness, emotional intelligence is another way to talk about it. It is so important to the success of an individual and the success of a program. So talk to us about what you found on emotional awareness. Well, I mean, I think, like you said, that's the buzzword now, like that stigma buzzword. I'm seeing it in the NFL commercials now with Peyton Manning talking about getting rid of the stigma. And I, I don't necessarily agree. I don't know if it's a stigma anymore. I think some of the best, uh, strongest culture programs I've been around, I think players know enough about each other, especially teenagers. They like to talk. They'll ask those questions. Um, I think there's, it could be a struggle with coaches. So, you know, the, um, uh, one of the things I reference in, the, in the, the study is the check-in. I called it the two-minute check-in. You know, Muskego High School in uh, Wisconsin, very good program out there, does it where a coach will just every day during stretch lines, he'll just go uh, approach a player and say, hey, what's in your heart right now? What's in your mind right now? And the staff over there would tell me that sometimes that, that, that player could be led to tears, you know, based on telling that coach something that's bothering him. But if you don't ask those questions, you're not going to know. You know, so there's an informal way of doing it like those check-ins, like what they do at North Dakota State. But there's also a pretty formal way of doing it. I got this from Steve Speck over at San Xavier High School over out by you. And I just feel like what he does with his wellness assessments, I don't know if you got a chance to see this, um, but what he does is he actually has players evaluate themselves 
on a one to five scale on sleep. Uh, these are all stressors. Like what are the potential stressors, whether it's sleep, whether it's academics, whether it's athletics, whether it's strength and conditioning, whether it's social, whether it's family. And it's a real simple rubric. It's in the study itself. You could take a look at it. Players assess themselves on a one to five scale. He and the training staff collect that information. They review it as a staff. And then they will go address the needs of players that they feel or that player feels that they are, you know, they, they are stressed, those triggers, whatever that may be. And he told me, you know, he saved, he, he saved some, some pretty important situations where, where players were going through things that he did not know and would have not known unless he gave them the opportunity to do this. And he does it two times a week. You know, he'll do it on a Friday. He'll get the information back on a Sunday. He'll review with players he feels he needs to review it with. And this stuff continually develops during the season. He told me that players were str- – he changed practice times because of this. He changed practice length because of this because players felt like they were stressed. And I really thought – I mean, you have to work. I mean, these are things that you have to do. It's not all about coaching football. You know, these are things behind the scenes that you have to do to gather a pulse of your team emotionally. And I thought that was a really good concept that we just started doing this year here at Rawway High School in New Jersey. But I, I felt like it's really helped our players to identify their stressors because they may not know. You, you, you have to teach them what stressors are, you know, and you have, they have to understand what exactly could be bothering them and, and, and more importantly, how to solve it. And I don't pretend to be a psychologist. These coaches that I work with don't pretend to be psychologists. So they bring in everybody. They bring in the training staff with it. They bring in anybody that they know. I had one coach that hired somebody outside of district over in a university high school, Ben Malbasa in Ohio. He actually brought on someone, Ben brought on someone, a, a staffer that did nothing to do with the football team. She was a former lacrosse player. She came on and her job was just to help potential stressors with players. You know, she developed a goal platform with them where she was able to sit down with them. And, I, and here's someone that w- was not part of this on-field staff. There was no competition element to coaching a position. That was just her job, to be able to sit and talk with players that were struggling in various areas of their lives. Yeah, I know, know Ben and, and what he does, and I certainly know Coach Speck. And I know Coach Speck really um, values what he can learn from his players. I know they're a team that you know, wears the, uh, the, the, the GPS type of things on their players so they can track the uh, physical element of, of their performance, et cetera. But I, I love what he put together and in, in what you shared in the study as far as um, the, this idea of emotional awareness. Uh, that takes us to, to six, responsibility. This is certainly one we're familiar with. The, the whole idea of responsibility or, or accountability, especially accountability, has taken a, a, a negative connotation in the way we do it. I think because uh, that side of things has, has been done poorly over time, that um, there is definitely uh, some things you want to look at in terms of, of how you do this behavior of responsibility. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot there. I mean, if, if I were to really pinpoint one thing, I would, I would really specifically address the, the leadership group and the leadership councils. I feel like that has now altered over time where you're empowering players, you're teaching them leadership, um, before, you know, I just think that the, the days of just selecting captains have kind of fallen by the wayside. I think players are in a position now in a player driven culture to earn that. One of the best sources I did I, regarding responsibility was Mike Eddy. And I, I'm, I'm sorry if I don't know what high school he is at now, Mike, Mike worked with us. He's a head of high school coach where he actually has a captain's application process. 
where captains that want to be part of the team have to apply for it. And he treats them like applicants for a job where they apply. And, and Mike's information is all on there, but he, they apply for the job. He and the staff sit down. They interview these potential candidates. They sit with them. Um, they decide amongst themselves who is best fit for the job. The player has to come up with an application and basically an essay on why they're the best fit for being a captain. And then what I think the best thing that Mike does is whoever does not get picked to be a captain, those players are eventually into a leadership mentoring program where coaches will meet them once a week, once every two weeks, just to keep making sure that they want to be leaders and discuss with them how to be leaders. So I think that's a big responsibility piece, the responsibility to your teammates. And going back to the leadership council now, I think that's changed completely. You have to, in most of these programs I talk to, you have to apply to be part of that program. And once you're in that program, you're basically taught responsibility. And it's not always about getting them in leadership teams and competing, which I think a lot of coaches do, but most coaches now are making a point to highlight one of the core values in those leadership groups. So they're competing, you know, and, and some of them are academic-based core values, you know, so they're giving more points for grades or more, whatever needs you have in your program. Um, one of them is more multi-sport participation, which we know is always an issue. Um, so now they're giving more points for players that play other sports. So basically they're addressing a need or addressing a core value need in their program and using the leadership councils to kind of drive that. And there's a lot of information on there in the study, but it's just a different way to approach you know, a leadership council where players are just basically, you, you, you know, chastising other players for not doing the right thing. Some programs like University of Cincinnati, and we know the kind of year that they've had this year, they were a source to this study. They're actually, those players are actually delegating discipline for people. The leadership council is actually involved in the discipline procedure, which I thought was pretty eye-opening, you know, and there's some flexibility there. Uh, Mike Denbrock was a source and talked about that. But, yeah, there, there's, there's a good amount of information there. But I found a, a big discrepancy with the leadership councils now and how they're run and how they're expected to be run. Yeah, I, I love the idea, too, of, of what you said about the application process and the interview for uh, captain positions, something we did at BW starting in 2010. And, and I can say this, that that process was so valuable to us what we learned about those players and their approach to wanting to be a leader on the team and just the things that came out in the interview as we talked to these guys, we really got to know more about who that guy was as a leader and and saw how we could lean on them even if they weren't the captain, that um, they were really bought into it. And the interesting thing is, and we didn't give them any parameters for this, we had the interview day and we thought the head coach told them to do it because they all showed up in suit and tie and he's like, I didn't tell them to do that. They just did that on their own. So they really take it seriously. And I, I think especially as you get into the college level, so important for them and they're preparing to go out into the job world to have an experience like that. Okay, and then that takes us to the last one here, Coach. And the behavior you focused on was resiliency. And the idea that came up throughout this was failure being growth and the difference between failing and failure. Yeah, I mean, and that, and I think, you know, Sean Lewis, uh, head coach of Kent State, I mean, he's the one that told me that if you're not putting your players in a position to fail every day, you are not helping them. So how you do that, and there's various methods in the study, whether it's a physical model, you know, Bronco Mendenhall of Virginia will put his players through an excruciating activity, you know, that, that may not have anything to do with football, 
you know, just getting behind the line and running 30 sprints the right way before he even coaches them anything about football. That's one of them, you know, before he even talks about football. Mike Norvell of Florida State, you know, he goes through his whole process of his mat strength and conditioning program during the offseason where players are graded based just on their body demeanor and their response. If they do a drill wrong, this is all being filmed. The assistant coaches will look at his demeanor and they will grade his demeanor and his response after he makes a mistake or after he does something wrong. This will all be filmed. The coaches get in the meeting. They're not even talking, Keith, about, you know, a four, three quarters defense. They're talking about how players are responding to adversity, to failure. And then they'll, rub- they'll have a rubric and the rubrics in the study well, they'll grade that player on a one-to-five scale, and that player has a total grade for that week. And players on a certain level are allowed to wear a different color T-shirt. So they're basically um, isolating, for lack of a better word, players with, with good response to poor response. You know, so I thought that was a really interesting way to do it. And then there's the cognitive response models. You know, and that's Tim Kite and Brian, and, you know, they'll come in, and coaches are, coaches are given scenarios to players. Well, they'll say, okay, here's the scenarios that could happen in the game. We could fumble the opening kickoff. And you think about how many times that happens. Or we won't recover an onside kick. Or we'll have a turnover, you know, a pick six to start the game. Or there'll be some terrible weather, okay, and we can't throw the football over an air raid offense. How are we going to respond? And they'll put all these scenarios up on a whiteboard, and players in a classroom setting will write down their predicted responses. So not only are they able to gauge they're, be, they're teaching to the test. So not only are they able to gauge what those responses are, they're able to teach what the correct response should be during a classroom environment. And, I th- and this is done a, you know, a Friday before a game, if the game's on a Saturday. You know, I know Muskego High School in Wisconsin does this, and um, uh, Virginia Tech was doing this under, under Coach Fuente. Well, they'll show clips of, of, of just things that have gone wrong in the game. You know what I mean? Whether it's uh, you know, an unsportsmanlike penalty from other teams, not even Virginia Tech's team. And then they'll have a discussion on it, you know, right before they actually board the bus for the game. Or, you know, uh, uh, P.J. Fleck in Minnesota will actually have a reel, a cut-up reel of all responses. You know, and um, the, uh, another coach, who is it that, um, uh, man, uh, I'm trying to remember. He, oh, Tennessee Chattanooga. I want to see if it was Tennessee Chattanooga or it was, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here. Oh, Will Healy. Will Healy. Um, and I forgot what program Will's with now. Charlotte. Uh, UNC Charlotte. Yep. So Will Healy at UNC Charlotte will actually, he'll have a camera just during the course of the practice. And he, he calls it a body language camp where he's just filming different players' body language after a play, after a drill, after a team session. And then he'll get with the coaches to make sure not only just coach the negative, but coach the positive too. If somebody takes back a pick six for a touchdown for six, everybody on the defense better be going jumping on that guy. Because if it's not, it's going to be evaluated. So when I went to see Resiliency, and that's a big one. We all know Angela Duckworth's book on grit and what she found in terms of that's the biggest, you know, uh, biggest attribute in overcoming and achieving success, not talent, but grit. And there's various methods in there where teachers, where coaches are teaching how to respond either cognitively, like I said, or physically. And uh, there's a good amount of information there because obviously that's so important during the course of the game and, and during the course of our lives for that matter. Well, you definitely collected a lot of information here, but as I've said, you've put it together into a system, and I, I love how it was organized uh, over three hours worth of content that you've packed into this, um, the example, because you know the, any system that you adopt, and this could be offenses, defense, and it's certainly culture, 
has to fit with the things you believe in, has, has to fit for you. And certainly you want to try to expand what you do and maybe step out of your comfort level. But I think this gives you a great starting point. And especially at this time of the year, this is the time of year where we look at this. And we've had, you know, three situations probably that we've experienced. Number one, we just flat out failed. We didn't get to where we wanted. Things didn't happen. You know, we have to look back on that culture. As you said, do an autopsy and figure out where we're going from here. Number two, you just missed. You were almost there. You almost won the championship, but you got to get over the top. And the third one is you did. You won it all. You were champions. That means you got a target on your back and you can't rest on where you were. You have to get better. And I think this system, the idea of player-driven culture, if you're not there yet, I think it's worth studying. If you have done this, I think there's a ton you can do to enhance your program. So I highly recommend this. And uh, Mike, I appreciate you taking the time to discuss this and tell us about what, what the study entails and all the work you've done here. Keith, I appreciate it. The last thing I'll say is, you know, Dabo Sweeney will spend every July getting with his staff and meeting with them to actually examine and assess the culture and rebuild it every year. So if he could do it, you know, I realize it's a higher level. I think we all should spend the time to do that. That's how important it is. It has to be reassessed every year. And coaches, I'll put the link to this study in the show notes and you can check it out there. Mike, thanks again for taking the time and I look forward to talking more ball with you in the future. Thanks for having me, Keith. Always a pleasure. Thank you again for listening to the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. Remember to go to glazierclinics.com slash win to register for our sweepstakes, which will be awarded next week on the fifth anniversary of the podcast. Thank you again for listening. Follow me on Twitter at Coach K Grabowski and follow all we're doing at coachincoordinator.com.